Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yes, yes. Welcome into the Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network. I am your host, Tim McKernan, from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. This week, our guest is St. Louis County Prosecuting Attorney Bob McCullough. Our conversation begins with his childhood and experiencing the death of his father, a police officer killed in the line of duty, and all the way to present day. And of course, over the course of that time, he has become the St. Louis County Prosecuting Attorney with numerous cases that have not only gotten large local attention, but especially in the cases of two uh, national attention, and one being Axel Rose and Guns N' Roses at Riverport uh, nearly, at this point, 30 years ago, and, of course, Ferguson, which we spend a great deal of time discussing with Bob McCullough, and that, of course, taking place in 2014. So all of that is here to come in a conversation, uh, a candid conversation, with the St. Louis County Prosecuting Attorney. It all comes your way from the homeloanexpert.com studios and Ryan Kelly and his staff making this podcast possible. And I want to make sure that I convey to our listeners something that uh, Ryan has uh, said to me, and that is this, that right now, if you have credit card debt, this is the time to capitalize on a cash out refinance. Home values continue to go up. Meanwhile, interest rates are extremely low. And listen, the average household has $16,000 of credit card debt. And the way things are set up, it is very difficult to get out of that hole. Well, with Ryan Kelly and with his team at thehomeloanexpert.com, you can get out of that hole. You can do a cash-out refi. Go to thehomeloanexpert.com, and you will see firsthand what you can do and have that cash to get out of credit card debt and take advantage of the circumstances of the market right now in the U.S. He's online at thehomeloanexpert.com. He is our studio sponsor here on the Tim McKernan Show. Also, James Carlton, State Farm Insurance Agent in Webster Groves at 314-961-4800 and online at carltoninsurance.net. This is a gentleman who I have gotten to know since we started doing the podcast and who I cannot help just like just like Ryan Kelly, but rave about because I know the way that he operates his business. I know his knowledge of the industry, and I know that he can save you money. Plus, when it comes to insurance, you want to know that you, your family, and your top assets are taken care of, and James Carlton will do that. Go online and see the kind of reviews he gets at James Carlton State Farm Insurance Agent. People are raving about him. It's an insurance agent. Why would you be that excited? Well, because there's that big of a difference. First off, save you money. Secondly, customer service. James Carlton, Carlton Insurance Agency. It's in Webster Groves. He's a local guy, and he is a guy who truly does care about the community. And, and a lot of our listeners have gotten on board with James Carlton at 
800-4800 or carltoninsurance.net. Thehomeloanexpert.com, James Carlton, Carlton Insurance, and Johnny Landoff, Chevrolet, 270 in the intersection of Washington and Elizabeth online at landoff.com. Place I just got a car for my wife here within the last month and a place that has been in business in St. Louis since 1943, and you know they're going to be in business for decades to come. A first-class family running a first-class business, Londoff.com, Johnny Londoff, Chevrolet. Our conversation with St. Louis County Prosecuting Attorney Bob McCullough here on the Tim McKernan Show from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. Thank you so much. For coming in, this oh, is a, my pleasure. This is a, this is an honor to sit down and have a chance to have a conversation with you. So I really sincerely appreciate it. Well, great, great, glad to do it. Thank you. Um, I'm I'm curious what your your background is because you come from a family associated with the police department and how much that has influenced you as as sure. you grew up and, and got into your career. Sure, I, that's uh, I'm I'm a local guy, born and born and dragged up in St. Louis. What part um, of St. Louis? Uh, on the north side, you know, I I, uh, I was born about eight houses off of Goodfellow, a little below, a little south of Natural Bridge, and grew up about eight houses off of Goodfellow on the other side, yeah. uh, north of Natural Bridge. Okay. So we never moved too far uh, and went to school. You know, we were cut off from everything with the highway and the small arms plant, so I did all my running around. Even though we lived in the city, I, I uh, did all my running around in Pine Lawn, Northwoods, that area. Went to school there, grade school there. Okay. But yeah, we uh, have, a, I think, uh, a pretty good family history with uh, with law enforcement and public service, uh, primarily police. But there there have been others in uh-huh. public service involved, firefighters, and um, but mostly law enforcement, I'd say. And your father was a- my father was a uh, St. Louis uh, police officer, city police officer a, in, in the uh, canine division. When they started the canine division, he had been on probably about 10 years. And I think they started the canine division um, in about 1959 or 60. And so he was one of the uh, one of the first officers in that uh, in that group. And tell me about his career and experience, the influence on you. Well, you know, of course, it had a a big influence like any kid would, regardless, I think, of of. uh, you know what your parents profession is. Uh, It was like anything else. You know, my father, like. Most of the fathers in the neighborhood uh, work shifts, whether they were working a shift at the, you know, at the Chevy plant on, on Natural Bridge or a shift in the police department. It was just kind of rotating shifts. So sometimes they're around during the day. Sometimes they're not around during the day. His was a little bit different uh, because because of the dog. You know, the dog. Was sure. The, yeah. Yeah. The dog. dog was a drug dog and was involved in a lot of searches back in the day. So he might get called out anytime, day or night uh, for that. But. Uh, but that was an interesting time too when we had uh, we had a, a a great pet around the house yeah. who was a working dog. Yeah. So it was um, it was a little different. That was different from most. But uh, in 1964, though, my father was was killed in the line of duty, uh, and that that had a big effect, of course, as you might expect. Not so much on um, law enforcement, but like any 12 year old, you know, what, regardless of the circumstances, you lose a parent, you especially you lose someone to violence. That uh, that's what impacted me is that, you know, I was 12 years old. So it wasn't like a police officer was killed in the line of duty. It was my father was killed. He's not coming home. So that has a big effect on, on a kid. Uh, yeah. And so, but I think overall, 
Um, you know, the fact that he spent time uh, in the police department, but 15 years, I had an uncle who was a police officer from starting before World War II and continuing well into the 70s. Um, and then others, you know, who were all in law enforcement, various aspects of it. So I think that just kind of had a uh, instilled this uh, public service um and law enforcement with that. Yeah. With with your father being killed in the line of duty, mm-hmm. was that something as a, as a as young boy? I mean, you're 12 years old when that sure. happens. Was that something when he would go to work? Was that on your mind or was that? No. No, never. No, it, no it never. I mean, it really never did. I said it was, we were like anybody else as far as we were concerned. Your father went to work. And like uh, every other kid in the neighborhood, their father went to work. He never thought that, you know, that the type of job he has, there's a greater chance that he may not come home. That that thought never never crossed my mind. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would tell you, I can tell you, I remember very vividly that the night that it occurred, before I knew what had happened, I, I really thought something had happened to my mother. Um, and you thought something had happened based on? No, 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 just, uh, I, well... You know, I got home that night, uh, and there was an aunt over at the house, a family friend, uh-huh. um, and my sister was there, and you could tell something was not right. My mother wasn't around, my father wasn't, and he was at work, as far as I knew. But I, I don't know why. I just, I just thought, man, something happened to my mom, and I don't. And well, then my mother came home. I thought, oh wow, that's great. I feel better now. She said, and then figured out, oh, something must have happened to my dad. Oh boy. So it wasn't, it wasn't something you thought about immediately. That you know, that hey, this is. In his line of work, something bad can really happen. It just never occurred to you. Does that didn't occur to me? Does that moment, do you think, influence the direction you wound up choosing with your career, your life? I, I don't think that moment did. I think the preceding fifteen years or twelve years, and I was only twelve years yeah. old, but my the fact that my father had been in law enforcement, so we were around law enforcement all the time, even after my father was killed, my uncle was still a, a police officer, and, and so we still knew a lot of police. So we're just kind of around law enforcement all the time. Mm-hmm. So I think the fact that he had been a police officer had more of an impact than, than the fact, uh, of course, that he was uh, that he was killed. So many of us <laughs> when we're in high school or even college as undergrads have no idea what we want to do when sure. the time comes. Did you know that uh, you wanted to go into law? Not particularly. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of thought at some point, probably mid-high school, I thought, well, you know, I'm, you know, we'll, probably end up as a going to the police. Yeah. I'd like to go to the, be a policeman. So, yeah. but obviously that, uh, that wasn't going to work out. Yeah. Um, you know, when I, my senior year, I had some knee issues. Um, and so that kind of ended. Uh, that's a, that's a light way of describing what it, what it was that <laughs> so you call it knee issues. I'm like, Oh, I sprained my ankle, but, but tell Yeah, I had uh, where actually I'd been a, I had been a distance runner. So I was very fortunate because I had problems with the knee, you know, the usual stuff a runner might have, cartilage, ligaments, and that. And so they were doing some surgery on it, and and uh, the doctor discovered something that wasn't right. It turned out to be a tumor. I had uh, bone cancer. Wow. Uh, and at what, the, 16, 17? Uh, I was uh, 17, yeah. And so um, I didn't find out until much later, fortunately, but that type of bone cancer, the survival rate was, um, I was very close to single digits. Oh so, my gosh! Fortunately, it's nobody. Seventeen years old. So nobody told me that then. So, uh, so I was very. Fortunate. I, mean, now, I mean, you have your father killed him yeah, when he was twelve, and now you have bone cancer at seventeen. Yeah. yeah. Well, we had you know had a couple of rough spots like everybody does, but you know, I don't know. I mean, overall, they, they, <laughs> those are pretty two two major things. They, they were major. Yeah. Um, 
And but you know you you deal with them. You know I learned early on um, that you know you deal with things, like it or not. Life goes on, everything goes. So so you deal with things, or or you let them eat eat you up. And you know that didn't happen. Obviously so, not. So you, you don't forget any of that stuff. Sure. Obviously, and it and it limits things that uh, that you can do that you want to do. But you know like I said you you deal with it. So you're interested before then in being a police officer, sure. and then. Well, then I thought, well, you know, I'd like to, maybe I'll go to law school. And um, and then thought, well, you know, in law school, I can be in law enforcement. I can be, a, you know, go to the prosecutor's office, work there. And I thought once I got towards law school, I thought, you know, that's, yeah, I really would like to do that, mm-hmm. to be a prosecutor. And so um, so when I went to law school and I graduated, I, I, I graduated in 77. I initially worked for the Court of Appeals. I had a chance to be a clerk for Judge Stewart at the Court of Appeals. And then about um, uh, six or eight months into the clerkship, um, and the judge knew I wanted to apply to the prosecutor's office, so so I did that, and um, I applied in the city and the county, and fortunately, uh, it worked out with the county. The mm-hmm. county called and hired me first. So, and and really <clears throat> have been a staple in St. Louis, St. Louis County. Yeah. Ever since. Well, yeah, I did. I um, I served as an assistant for about. A little over seven years, um, and kind of worked my way up. You know, you, 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 everybody starts off at the bottom. You start off doing, you know, traffic dockets and misdemeanor cases, and that was a big deal. And, and worked your way up. So by the time I had left, um, seven plus years later, you know, I was trying to a lot of the major cases in the office, uh, a lot of murder cases, a lot of rape cases, and the like. So, mm-hmm. so I had a great deal of experience with that, and and it was. It was difficult leaving the office. You know, I really wanted to stay, but uh, you just couldn't afford it. You couldn't make a, you couldn't make a career of it then mm-hmm. because it just. Uh, yeah, we had we were married, had kids. Um, kids get expensive. Let me tell you, you don't know already. <laughs> Got a nine month old. <laughs> that's a, that's yeah. usually the cheap days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I just, I've just been told by so, people such as yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so so I had to move on. I went into private practice for a while, and and again. Uh, luck intervened in that uh, Mr. Westfall, who was the prosecutor, mm-hmm. was my boss mm-hmm. and a mentor, decided that uh, he was going to run for county executive, which which opened up the seat for prosecutor in 1990. And so, well, I would love to go back and do that and be a prosecutor again. So we, we took a chance with it, along with a lot of other people. And I was very fortunate that it uh, that it worked out. And I don't know. I, I don't know if people tie you to this. They'd have to be uh, probably following cases in St. Louis yeah. pretty closely. Uh, you immediately have the Axel Rose Guns and Roses case. Well, that was the uh, that was the second big case. Uh, that was first year was first year was very interesting. Eleven days into my term, I, I got sworn in on January one, and on January eleventh. Um, a county police officer was shot and killed, um, and so that was you know that was a that was a big that was a big deal. You know there was a, a what were the circumstances that, around that? Uh... She had made a uh, a pedestrian stop, an inquiry. There was somebody reported a suspicious uh, suspicious guy, acting guy, you know, walking down the street or standing in the middle of the street, uh, and so she went down to check it out, and and. Uh, there were only two people there, her and the guy who shot her. And so we had to piece it together as to what actually happened. But long story short is that things deteriorated. Uh, the guy was wanted 
Um, he was actually on bond on, a, on another charge and was confined to his house, so he wasn't supposed to be out. And so uh, he had a gun, um, ended up shooting her, and then took her gun and shot her with that, too, and, and, uh, and then left her on the street, took off in her car. So it took, uh, it took a while to, uh, to resolve that. I think it was, it was probably a two-month investigation before he could find who actually did it and when we charged the guy. And so that was 11 days into the term. Wow. And then, yeah, then that summer, uh, Guns N' Roses decided to uh, end a concert early <laughs> out at, uh, at Riverport. And, and it was, uh, you know, created a lot of issues. The, the fans were not, uh, were not happy with that. And, and there was a lot of destruction going on out there. And, we, and, and it got a little confused over the years that, you know, we never charged him with anything to do with the damage and the destruction caused by the, uh, the rioting that went on after he left. Although he, he's the one, I guess, who created that by leaving. But mm-hmm. um, what we charged him with, they charged him, he, he dove into the crowd after a guy with a camera. Yeah. And landed on two or three people and, and did some slight injuries to him. And then when he climbed out of the pit and back in the dressing room, he trashed the dressing room. So he was charged with a couple counts of misdemeanor assault and a uh, uh, destruction of property for the dressing room, not for the millions of dollars that uh, in damage that happened at Riverport. And it was brand new. And yeah, this was, it was, this was like then, the second or third event that was there. So, so, um, and then he left town, not surprisingly. He's not from here, but it went on. He had uh, local lawyers, and and I talked to his lawyer and said, look, these are they're misdemeanors. You know, tell the guy to come back. You know, it's not the end of the world. We'll figure out something. You know, something will happen. He doesn't have any real record or anything, but, well, what are you going to do? Well, you know, we're not going to do that until he's here, you know, because they don't like the recommendation that you're going to make. And then the guy doesn't necessarily right, come back. Right. So get him here. He gets he gets booked in because he was now a fugitive. Uh, normally would do it on a summons, but but uh, he was he had no ties to the community to say. So come in. He gets booked in, and then we'll talk, and we can probably do it all in one day. Okay. Well, um, he didn't want to come back, so he avoided it. And I thought, well, you know, at some point we're going to have to, you know, we can't just let it go. We're going to have to have him picked up somewhere. Well, I'm not going to go looking for him, you know, until, but, but at some point we will. So it was really about a year later. And then uh, he was starting a new tour and I saw, you know, and it, most fugitives don't publish their schedule, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but he published his and, and uh, he was appearing in, I think it was Tulsa or Oklahoma city. Mm-hmm. And it was a bus tour. And then, the concert after that was in Chicago, suburban Chicago. But, well, seems to me if you're on a bus, you're going right up I-44. Right. So, so I contacted the highway patrol and asked them to contact their their pals in, in uh, Oklahoma uh-huh. to say when they're leaving, you know, the guy, there's a warrant out for him. Here it is. And so, but he decided he was going to go around through Little Rock. Oh, uh, really? Oh, so he had, he encountered the plan. I guess he did. But did he, he said, tipped off, you think, or is no, that always in the plan? No, I, I have no idea. But the bus tour came through, and everybody was there except him, and they said, well, he, he went to visit a friend in Little Rock. Of course. So, <laughs> so then I contacted the, uh, uh, it, where was, it was Rosemont, uh, outside of Chicago. Sure, yeah. So we contacted the Rosemont police, said, hey, he's got... A couple concerts up there coming up, and there's a warrant out for him. 
my suggestion is you you execute the warrant after the concert. You know, it's over now. So whether he got the word or that, I don't know. But he canceled those concerts. Oh, and so yeah. so he was avoiding it this yeah stringently, was, which in your mind is kind of odd because it's not that big of a it deal. It was not that big. right. I mean, he ended up with a probation case, and he made some charitable contributions. So, but his next events were in Auburn Hills, Michigan. So. You know, another, I, I called Auburn Hills and said, hey, the guy's going to be there. Sure, we'll be happy to send. And, and we'd send the documents so they've got everything, and they canceled those. Oh, my God. So, so they're canceling shows just to avoid you. Four, yeah, four can, just to avoid this. Yeah. A whole lot to do with me. <laughs> I think maybe the civil suit might have had more to do with it because he was being sued for breach of contract right, and, right, right. and the damage and all that. But that was a civil matter. But then he, uh, then he left the country. And he went to England for a, a benefit uh, for, I think it was for Freddie Mercury then, who mm-hmm. just passed away. And so I so, thought, right, well, fine, he, he leaves, he's got to come back at some point. So we just, we let the uh, customs know that, hey, this guy comes back in, he's, he's wanted here. So, and eventually, make an even longer story long, he, he didn't come back when he was supposed to the first time. And... But he did uh, arrive in New York, you know, some Sunday night. And unfortunately for him, um, you know, Sunday night, there aren't a whole lot of people around, judges and the like. So he got yeah. locked up and got put in jail, and he was going to be there till he could post bond. And, of course, there was no judge to find then. So, so eventually, I think he wised up. His local lawyers, who were great, just said, hey, we, you know, we'll do everything we can to get him here. But... Uh, and finally, uh, he did come into town, and it was all wrapped up in you know a matter of hours. He came in, he got booked. We made our recommendation, which was probation, and he made some uh, contributions, significant, mm-hmm. at least for us, not for him probably, <laughs> but to uh, a number of charities around town, and then went about his business. Did you ever meet with him? No, no, no. no, no. I never did. No. Yeah. So, so something that could have been wrapped up, really, that day... Yeah, in a couple of hours. I mean, all you had to do is, and we told uh, Art Margulis was his lawyer. Uh-huh. Art just have him, you know, he comes in, pick the time, pick the day. I don't particularly care. Just, you know, have him fly in and bring him out here. He gets booked in. He gets released. You know, we come upstairs, resolve the case, and go about our business. Was the media everywhere for this? Was the media aware? Or did he was he able to come in and out? And Yeah, no, no they were there. Yeah. yeah, they were there for it and so on. Made a production of it. So. Sure, of course. Oh. <laughs> that's, the nature. that's what we do. And, and, they, and they made it, you know, it got, parts of it kind of got blown out as though we were somehow, you know, it was like uh, chasing the fugitive, yeah. you know, the, the one-armed man yeah. across the country. You know, it wasn't. I, I made I made a phone call to the Missouri Highway Patrol, then a phone call to the uh, police in Rosemont, and then to the police in uh, Auburn, Auburn Hills. Hills. And then uh, to customs, and that was a local call. So, <laughs> so that you know that was that was all that it, that it was. It's just say, like, come on, we can't. You can't just ignore it. Yeah, it's got to be tough so, too. And he had a year. He had uh, just over a year to to figure it out. You know, work your schedule. You know, so it's not a big deal. Yeah. You know, your schedule. Come in whatever day you want. You know, we're going to be here every day. So, but he chose not to. Did you go to the Guns N' Roses show when they visited last year? No, I think my uh, backstage passes got lost in the mail. I, I didn't hear from him. I noticed he was in the city, though. Hey, well, yeah, <laughs> not a coincidence, perhaps. Uh, another case that certainly uh, got attention in 2000 uh, called the Jack in the Box case. Yeah. 
Uh, for our audience who is not familiar with that, give us the background on that, if you would, Bob. On that case, there was a uh, a, a joint um, local federal task force that was a drug task force, and, and they had worked a number of cases, not just these two guys in particular, but it was supposed to be a... Uh, um, it was set up, as I recall, as a as a drug buy, but it was going to be a bust. They had already made a number of buys from this guy, and so when they they met on this on this lot, they, the, the plan I it was, as I recall, to block them in on both sides of their car. Uh, well, the the back car got there just a a tad late, and I mean a tad, just a few seconds, but enough that. Uh, this guy was able to throw it in reverse and, mm-hmm. and back in. You know, by the time he went back any, he hit that car and just had the tires spinning, you know, just trying to, but he wasn't going to push a big SUV out of the way. And so um, I think, long story short, is that when he, he, you know, and there were a couple cops that were, they weren't, you know, they all stayed off to the side, but when he, when he backed up, he turned because he was going to go. So now there are two guys that were in front of him. And when, it looked like when he let off the brakes, the, the car dropped down. He had it, well, you could see the tires spinning and smoking. And so when he let off the, the gas, then it, uh, the car drops down and looks like it's coming forward. And then the, the two officers that were right there fired a, a whole lot of shots, uh, in the, and the two occupants were killed. And, you know, and one of the, the reason why you make reference to the car dropping down and then moving forward is because that seemed to be, from my research, yeah. The source of consternation as to whether or not correct. the two who were killed were actually coming at the police officers. Am I correct on that? Correct. That, that's that's what it was. You know, what we have to do is is look at everything, and and you have to, even by the Supreme Court rulings, you know, be in that position. You have to look at it as the officer saw it at the time, and and um, and that is 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 what it looked like. There was some video of. Uh, it was not a very good system, but it showed. You know, you clearly, you could see the smoke from the from the uh, tires. That so they were spinning pretty good while it's in reverse. And, and just as soon as he let off the gas, I don't think he even had to put it in drive, but let off the gas and it dropped down some and looked like it was coming forward to them. So there are only two guys in front of the car who both um, opened fire. Other officers all around the car. Nobody else did because nobody else was in any danger at that point, real or, or perceived. perceived at that point. And so, but it, it did spark a lot of, a lot, a lot of controversy. And, and, you know, we did and brought everything in and, and presented all the information to the grand jury, which might sound familiar. Yes. <laughs> um, and the grand jury looked at it and, you know, and, and, but they heard all of the evidence. And, and so, and, and, and even then there were some people who understandably didn't like the, uh, the outcome of that. Federal government, the the United States Attorney Justice Department looked at it the same thing again, the same, and ended up with the same conclusion. Although they had a little different uh, perspective on, you know, the car. I think they said didn't move forward, but was rocking. Mm-hmm. So, tell you the truth, I don't know how it can rock without. You can't rock in one direction, right. but but either way, it, it was clear that uh, that it was moving, um, and. And they came to the, that conclusion too. The Justice Department did that. Tragic as as it was, there were no. Uh, uh, it was a justified use of force. In reading up for our conversation, uh, I saw that uh, you experienced criticism 
at that time, and this case was 2000, 2001? Uh, 2000, I believe. Yeah. Um, at the time, um, and so I want to make sure that the quote is correct, that you said these two guys were bums. And well, then that was brought back during Ferguson, which we'll get into. Know, is, is that yeah. an accurate pers- quote? And, well, and then the perception then leads to, yeah. of course, the Ferguson discussion. Well, what happened is that was not part of any sort of statement that I made, you know, relating to the case itself. You know, later they, they there was an attempt um, to portray these two gentlemen as as upstanding citizens, members of the community, when both of them were convicted drug dealers. And what I said is these guys, and this is after, well after everything was over with, is that, hey, these guys were, you know, I, I, I could have said they were, and probably should have said they were convicted felons, mm-hmm. but they had they had put, spread more death and destruction in the community than just about anybody. These guys were bums, is what I said. So mm-hmm. a little intemperate at the time, but... Um, um, and and probably, probably didn't hear anything about it again for about 13 years. I, I, it, 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 why would it not a whole lot? Up? Right. Yeah. And then and maybe at the time somebody said something. But but I think at the time people could see that, you know, what the context was with right. the whole statement right. being made. So which brings us to August of 2014 right. and what is known internationally now as Ferguson. And that puts right. you in the global sure. spotlight. August of of 2014. August 9th, 2014, uh, Michael Brown is shot and killed by police officer Darren Wilson. I, it's a Saturday morning. Right. When you are made aware of what has transpired in Ferguson, uh, what is the process for you in your role? Well, our role is we're, we're not police, and but we obviously work very closely with the police. I have... A prosecutor on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, strictly for homicide cases and officer-involved shootings. We've had that for years, uh, long before this occurrence. And so I got a call from my prosecutor who got a call from the police. As soon as the uh, county homicide was, uh, crimes against persons was notified, they notified my prosecutor. So I I knew something had occurred almost immediately. Mm -hmm. And so I would get... uh, updates on it. Normally, my prosecutor would go to the scene, uh, but in this case, it was uh, it was advised that she not go to the scene because there, there were, um, it, it was becoming a rather hot scene, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so she didn't go, to, yeah, she didn't go to the scene then, but we kept in touch with that. And so, um, but so we were involved in it from the very outset, but, but a very different role, obviously, than, than I hope it's obvious than, than the police, you know, the police had the investigation and, you know, we look at everything afterwards in a nutshell, because it took on such local, national, even international um, significance that under different circumstances, the investigation would have been completed and then it would be presented to my office and then we would go through it and do whatever additional uh, or gather whatever additional information we thought necessary. And then perhaps present it to the grand jury or not present it to the grand jury, just depending upon the circumstances. But here, because there was such a, a public concern uh, as to what was going on, then then I thought it best that, that we just immediately start presenting information to the grand jury. What a lot of people, even though I said it a number of times, what a lot of people didn't 
catch was that grand juries in Missouri, uh, by the Constitution, have the power and the authority to investigate and return indictments. Other states, they only have the, the authority to return indictments after hearing. But in Missouri and some other states, they have that, that uh, authority to investigate. So that's what was going on there. We thought it was best that, that we start giving that information to the grand jurors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the same time, there was a federal investigation going on. It was uh, by the Department of Justice and, strictly speaking, was not a joint investigation, but they were conducted simultaneously. And so everything that county police, for example, would develop, whether it was an interview with, uh, you know, an individual photographs, that's immediately provided to the Justice Department. And if the Justice Department interviewed a witness, that was immediately provided to the county police and to the grand jury. And and same with the grand jury testimony. When a witness testified in the grand jury, that testimony was transcribed within, usually within 24 hours, and then given to uh, to the Justice Department. So when the grand jury finished their investigation and, and review, I was on November 24th of 14. Mm-hmm. On that day, the federal government, the Justice Department, uh, had all of the information, too. They had everything, too. Now, it took them another 101 days to, to uh, issue their report. Um, but their report was identical, the identical conclusion that the grand jury reached, that as tragic as this was, and every, every loss of life, is tragic, um, and the circumstances were tragic. But um, both uh, Eric Holder and the Justice Department came to the conclusion that uh, it was a, a justified use of force under the circumstances. Why do you think the DOJ waited 101 days? Well, they that's something you'll have to ask them. Um, I don't know if Eric Holder is going to come to Kirkwood to talk with me, but I'll not. try. <laughs> probably not. But what do you uh, think? I mean, you're you're. Well, in the I, I think part of it is they. Yeah, they. I, I don't. I really can't say. I mean, there was no. They had all of the information. Now they did put together a report where they detailed a, a, a the testimony of witnesses, and then made determinations as to. You know, in, in the report as to this witness is not credible because of this. This witness is credible because of this. So it was the report that was being made. I think they also wanted to release it. Um, the same time they had another report done on the on the Ferguson in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And so they were both released at the same time. But I urge everybody to go back when when you know I know there's still a lot uh, a lot of folks that think somehow you know we just skewered the presentation so much that uh, in order to get a no true bill, which couldn't be further from, from accurate on that. And what is no true bill just for well, the no casual? Ju- I mean, I'm sorry, yeah. To no, not get an indictment? No charges, right, correct. Right. And so in reality, we presented to them everything. You, you can search from Maine to Miami to San Diego to Seattle and back and not find a an officer-involved fatal shooting that was more thoroughly investigated or vetted than this case, and by an independent uh, entity, and that's the grand jury uh, of St. Louis County. You know, that grand jury was picked by a judge. We have nothing to do with picking the grand jury, you know, which is another thing that kind of got tossed around in some some outlets that I impaneled a grand jury. I, I don't know who's going to show up in the grand jury until the judge sends us the people that he or she has picked to serve on the grand jury. And in this case, that was in May. 
you know, this grand jury was not brought in just for this case. They had been there since May and were nearing the end of their term. Mm -hmm. And so they had all of that evidence. Now, it was different in that all of the information and evidence was presented to them, and anybody who had anything to, to say was brought before the grand jury and testified. And that, again, remember the investigation part. So, as I said from the very outset, as soon as, you know, if the grand jury returns charges, all of this information will ultimately be made public during the course of of a a prosecution. But if the grand jury does not return charges, then we will release it as soon as possible. And most of it was released that night. We withheld nothing. Now, some, you know, there there was an awful lot there, and logistically it took a while, so... I think there were there were a handful of, of statements by some people that were left out of the first release, and, and uh, when we found that, you know, I think they were released. A, Why were was that a, just an oversight? It was just was an oversight. Really? You know, there were most of the witnesses made multiple statements to the media, to the county police, to the FBI, uh, to the grand jury. And is your goal to find consistency and credibility in those statements? Well, sure. I mean, you look at that, and we presented that to the to the grand jury, all of those statements, and then the person came in and testified. And so that the grand jurors could assess their credibility as though, uh, similar to what a trial jury does, when because they're there to watch a witness testify, see how they testify, how they answer. And we gave them the instruction that you give a trial jury, saying you can... Uh, consider any interest, bias, or prejudice a particular witness may have on the outcome of this and their ability to observe and see all that when you're judging their credibility. That's given to every jury in the country Uh pretty much. So we thought it was, I thought it was important for this jury to have all of that information uh, and to make their decision. So, and then when we released it, there were, I think there were half a dozen or more statements that I think had been made, as I recall, they, they had been made to the FBI. They had been presented to the grand jury. But when we did the initial release, you know, the statements that these witnesses had made to the county police, to media outlets, and their testimony was all released, but these were in a different file in head. So they got released about a week later. Okay. The only the only thing we held back is there were no um, no photos from the autopsy itself. And there were no, uh, uh, we redacted from the testimony any identifying information. Nothing that had any content other than, you know, witness might say, well, I was at my mother's house visiting her at whatever the address was. Mm-hmm. We, we would okay. redact that part and the guy's name. But, but no substantive information was redacted. So that was all put out that night and, and uh, a few days later, some of it. I'm going to circle back to November 24th, 2014, mm-hmm. uh, and what wound up transpiring. And, and your perspective is, as you have your uh, press conference, and then the ensuing events that night in Ferguson, really around the St. Louis metropolitan area. But I want to uh, dig into the actual case itself, Bob. You mentioned it was a hot zone, so to speak, in Ferguson, mm-hmm. and you didn't send your prosecutor up there because of that. And from the outset, my perception, and I want to get everything correct in talking to you, is the reason why it was a hot scene is the perception, and certainly I think still to this day around the country mm-hmm. for many, that Michael Brown put up his hands correct, and then was still shot. And 
Right. That still exists, I think, and in a lot of people's minds right. four, four years later. Mm-hmm. So regarding that specific element of the discussion, right. what did your investigation and all of your interviews with witnesses tell you? Well, and not just ours, as I will, I refer people to because when I say it, there's still some that say, no, that just, that didn't happen. Well, I refer them to, again, Eric Holder's report where, and they say very clearly in there, it did not happen. There is the, the Eric Holder's report says very clearly that Michael Brown did not hold up his hands. Correct. And then was still shot. Correct. And... There were three medical examiner reports, one St. Louis County medical examiner, one was the chief medical examiner for the Department of uh, Defense at the at the request of the Justice Department. And then the third was actually the second one was um, at, at, uh, by a, a pathologist retained by uh, by the Brown family. And all three are identical. The, fi- the findings are identical. The only thing that was different is one. Two of the uh, uh, of the medical examiners thought there was a re-entry wound. In other words, a, 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 a shot hit Mr. Brown in the arm, came out the backside of his arm, and re-entered um, in, his, in his side. There was, so I think two of them thought it was a re-entry wound. The other one thought it was a separate wound. And why is that important? It's not. That's, that's kind of my point. Okay. That was the only distinction that was there. They were all in agreement as to... Um, where the shots were, um, the injuries. And what does that tell us from the hands-up element? It tells us that that didn't happen, uh, along with credible witnesses, as found by Eric Holder, again, saying that, you know, there is no, uh, there is no credible witness who said that, that uh, his hands were up and that he was down and, 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 and that, uh, you know, the hands-up don't shoot just didn't happen. How did it start then? Because it certainly, once it was said, sure. it took on a life of its own. You had members of the St. Louis Rams coming out with their hands-up, don't shoot. It became sure. a symbol for ensuing months. You know, it did. And I think I think part of it, and it's just me talking at this point, that part of it was that that, that story went out. And, it, and at the time, and for several hours, nobody really knew how many times... Uh, Mr. Brown had been shot or where, um, you know, his, uh, after the shooting, his body was covered, uh, with a, uh, a sheet by the paramedics who, who came by. And then it was some time before the, uh, they were able to remove the sheet and, and complete the investigation. And, and that added fuel to the, to the fire that was there. Why did, because that was a big element. Uh, it was a big element time. because, because that, you know, at the time there were, you know there was there was a, a very angry crowd, and and I think to some extent, uh, rightfully so, because they didn't necessarily know what was going on either. Um, and those rumors were were and statements were really fueling uh, through the crowd, and so nobody knew. Uh, and so there there were yeah you know, there were shots fired. It was a very uh, a very difficult situation right then and there and the, and the investigators just couldn't get to the uh, uh, to the investigation itself for quite some time I think in retrospect and looking at it now I think you know things probably would have been handled differently and that uh, mr. Brown's body would have been removed which you really don't like to do until you can do the investigation because there's very important information that can be obtained from that but but uh, considering you know the, the result I think the, that would be changed now 
also over the first few weeks of this, as it becomes a national story immediately, mm-hmm. there are calls for you yeah. to not be a part of this. Why right. were there those calls? I think, I mean, back up just a little bit. There, there, there was so much going on at the time and so much work that we had to do that I didn't, I didn't always get a chance to sit and watch a lot of the uh, comments that were going on with that, but but saw a lot of it too, and, and some of it was very easy to see because it was right outside of my window. Um, like, as in literally? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, there were demonstrations, you know, in front of the the courthouse, in front of our office, and and there were people who, who I'm sure some who legitimately believe that because of the background of mine that they were given, and by that, that law enforcement. And that's why I brought up the Jack in the Box shooting sure. with those two bums, or right. they were bums. And that I, you know, I would not be fair, you know, and just you know, had it all set up. And and if there was a conflict, then I certainly would have recused myself. But there there was no conflict on this. I, I didn't know, still don't know, Darren Wilson um, or anything about him at the time. Never heard of him. Um, and so there, there just wasn't any kind con- if there was a conflict, I would have immediately stepped aside and, and asked that another prosecutor be appointed. But, you know, my obligation to the people of St. Louis County is to handle uh, the matters that, that come up. And just because somebody thinks you shouldn't do that for whatever reason doesn't mean that uh, that you have the luxury of just saying, well, OK, somebody else handle it. Was it something that was ever even seriously considered by you or anybody associated with you from a as no. odd as it might sound symbolically to give more credibility to the investigation? Do you consider that element of it? You know, we looked at everything, and but it was never it was never something that I seriously considered because I knew you know, I'd been doing the job for a long time and and um, and and very well over the years and, and had no doubt that we were able to manage that and handle it in a professional, unbiased manner, fair manner, fair to everybody, uh, and, and handle that. So, you know, there, there wasn't anything that said there is a conflict here. And certainly you don't get to just say, well, this is too hot to handle or somebody's yelling at me. So I'm going to, I'm going to step aside. I think that's, you know, I wasn't, I was entrusted by the people of the county to uh, to handle these cases and and uh, and whatever cases come along and and I I have that obligation to them and I take that obligation very seriously. Michael Brown's name is part of the international lexicon at this point, and then your name really becomes mm-hmm. debated all over the country, whether it be columnists or news talk shows, television, cable news, mm-hmm. as to whether or not Bob McCullough should recuse himself, sure. and a number of things. Are set now. I realize you're focused on doing your job in the investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would imagine over the course of that, that had to be a difficult thing for you, your family. You've been through being in the center of of these top topics, whether it be with the Jack in the Box or Axel Rose, twenty plus years ago. But this one was at a different level. Was that difficult for you, for your family, to hear, read things said about you that that you may have felt were unfair or just flat out untrue? Yeah. It- it didn't bother me as much as it did a lot of my family. Yes, my my wife and my kids, you know, and they, and they you know they don't want to see those or hear those things said. But you know that was just um, it was not something that was going to sway or cause me to say no. Okay, then fine, I'm going to move on. So and nobody likes to hear bad things said about them, um, particularly if they're they're not accurate. And and there were a lot of people who I think legitimately thought well based upon what I've heard, you know, he shouldn't be doing this, but. You know what they heard wasn't necessarily accurate, and 
and there was nothing to indicate that, at all any sort of conflict. So, so November twenty fourth rolls around, and the entire country is focused on your podium mm-hmm. that evening. Before you go out there and make your statement, are you cognizant of the magnitude of of what you are about to say? Well. Uh, I was uh, cognizant of the magnitude of it. I was not, uh, uh, I didn't know the extent of the audience that was going to be there. So, um, uh, and I'm kind of glad I didn't at the time. Uh, that probably would have made me a, a bit more nervous. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew it was, obviously was going to be local and I thought probably on, on live on some of the, uh, the cable networks. But uh, the extent to which it was broadcast, I had no clue. And, until until later, when of I course. All that. And so you're reading it, and immediately there is a reaction, and the rioting yeah. begins in Ferguson. I imagine you go home from there, or I left. Or, you left. <laughs> I like I like the way that was phrased. Uh, and I imagine you saw that on television. Yeah. I- uh, what I are did. you thinking? I mean, realizing that something that, that well, even though it, was not, it wasn't a cause and effect as in you, but right. these were your words. That well, then... it wasn't. I didn't see them as anything I said to cause that. We, we knew or just assumed, I should say, that uh, there would be some disturbance as regardless of the outcome. And, and it was just going to be the magnitude of it. And so but that was not something that we could allow to cloud our judgment or or impact the outcome of this. I mean, the outcome has to be based upon the law and on the facts and on the evidence and, you know, not what sort of reaction uh, that you may, that you may, uh, that you may see from it. I know there was some criticism and, and, you know, it was something legitimately raised that, Hey, you did this at eight o'clock at night. You know, that was a terrible time. Well, it was a terrible time, but it was, there was no good time. And what we did was actually wanted to do it a little bit earlier. But uh, first of all, I, I have no control over when the grand jury is going to come back. And then we had a lot of preparation to do just to get the thing set up. And then we were we would have been the earliest we could have done it would have been right about the time schools are letting out, uh, businesses are closing and thought and in consulting with a lot of people with law enforcement, with the school districts. You know, we talked to all the impacted school districts in, in the area. Uh, businesses, you know, just came to the, made the determination that, look, it's better to do this after, you know, the kids are, who are coming home from school or are home from school, not, you know, on the school bus, you know, perhaps in some danger or anything. The same with businesses. They can make a determination and the like. So, there was no good time to do it. Sometimes we're worse than others, but that's mm-hmm. that's how we ended up with the uh, early evening um, announcement itself. What was going on in your mind as you're watching? You know, I I, I didn't see much of it until much later, but but it was it was really kind of heartbreaking to see. You know, Ferguson. You know, I grew up in the area. I'm very familiar with Ferguson. It's a wonderful community, uh, and, and always has been, and hopefully it will survive. Um, but it was kind of heartbreaking to see the, just the anger that was there. And you knew there was anger and that we had to, we had to address that, you know, and, and over the years we've tried to address that and, and, uh, and work with people to see, you know, okay, what can we do? And I think there have been a lot of changes, but there's a long way to go. Is, as you watch it, 
I'm curious, you're watching it from a different perspective because you have all of this testimony, you have all of this information that the vast majority of the public, whether they be on the north side or the south side or the west coast or the east coast, Mm -hmm. aren't privy to. Yeah. And so in other words... Even though there is anger, and I think I think almost anybody would acknowledge that there has to be some sure. well-founded reason for there to be anger sure. in the community. Sure. Um, but in this particular incident, based on your work and also the Department of Justice and the FBI, mm-hmm. that this is not rooted in what your investigation has told you to be correct. Mm-hmm. And therefore, there's this destruction and rioting going on in something that is not correct. That's a different perspective than many others were reviewing it from. And I think I, I can't say how much it had to do with this specific case or, or the, the concerns overall. I suspect more with concerns overall was just boiling up as a result of this case. But, but, you know, again, it was, it was something where we had to do and follow the law and the facts as the justice department did wherever they happened to take you. You know, we have no control over that. This is looking at them objectively. Mm-hmm. This is where, where it went. And, and I think it was better the grand jury was making the decision because we had a, a very good cross-section of the community on that grand jury who are not, um, they're not picked by me. They're picked independently by a judge and they represent the community and they heard everything on it. You know, to this day, those are the only 12 people on this planet who heard every bit of information, who examined every piece of evidence. The only 12 that ever yeah. have. And, and, you know, to their credit, they put their hearts and souls into it. They, they, it, it, was a, it took a huge emotional toll on them. And when you looked at it, even 101 days later, when uh, the Justice Department right. came out with its determination, it was right down the line with what that grand jury, because they were looking at the identical evidence, right. the identical information. There wasn't anything different that the, that the uh, Justice Department had that the grand jury didn't have. And so there's just that dichotomy there that, you know, this group looked at this and came to this conclusion, and that was somehow tainted. But another independent group, looked at the same thing, came to the identical conclusion, and there's a great deal of faith put into that one. So I'm comfortable that, that, you know, we did everything the way it was supposed to be done and working very closely with the Justice Department in in making sure that they had everything we had, we had everything they had. So uh, it was a very thoroughly investigated uh, occurrence. we, We discussed how, and you just made reference to how theirs was released 101 days after uh, yours, and a, a peer of mine who is in the legal community says that they placated the public by saying while the shooting was justified, the outrage is justified because of the oppression of the municipal courts. And that's not to imply that their findings regarding the municipal courts were wrong. I think they were accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of that statement? Oh, I don't know. I, I, you know, Senator, you'd have to ask Eric Holder why. I mean, and they had to prepare that statement too. I mean, it was an 87-page report that, you know, of course, the the statement that I had that night was not prepared, just starting that day. So, so they had a you know pretty good jump on it with that, and, and they had another report that was coming out. 
And I think that is, though, an important distinction there is that the, the outrage and a lot of the anger was the manner in which some municipal courts conducted themselves, which has absolutely nothing to do with me and my office. We have nothing to do with the municipal courts. We're not in those courts. We're mm-hmm. not the municipal prosecutor. We handle the state matters and certainly wouldn't handle uh, municipal matters or those types of matters and don't um, in the manner in which some of these munis were doing that. From my standpoint, hosting what is, I guess, kind of a sports talk radio show, when I'm traveling the country or I'm talking with my peers in, in my business, and they go, well, you guys lost two football teams, so you're not yeah. great football fans. It personally drives me up the wall because being closer to the fire, I know there are a large number of details that nationally sure. they think about us here in St. Louis regarding the Rams sure. that are factually inaccurate. The other thing I hear about when I'm traveling the country, I say, oh, I'm from St. Louis. Or my wife will say, yeah, we're from St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And they'll go, oh, Ferguson, how are you doing? The, yeah. the, those two things are synonymous. With the Rams, I feel like I can speak with a little more authority because it's what I do and it's what I did. Mm-hmm. But there are two perceptions regarding St. Louis that nationally, I think, uh, are rooted in some misinformation. And unfortunately, for the last four years in St. Louis, there are two signature events that have been uh, very rough for the community. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on how St. Louis is now attached to Ferguson, seeing it from your perspective as you did? You know, I think people, are, I hope, are beginning to understand. I will tell you one thing. I've talked to a lot of people around the country, too, and they are stunned to find out that Everything they saw on television, or, or I wouldn't say everything, but 90% of what they saw on television took place in, in a, a relatively small area of the community. Um, they really thought that, you know, the city, that the whole area was on fire all the time. And, and I can see how they, they would get that impression, but you know, and I know, and I think everybody around here knows that that was pretty inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that just sort of fanned the flames, I think, somewhat. Uh, as to as to the entire event, and I don't want to minimize that. This this was uh, I said at the very beginning in August of 2014 that you know the death of any young man is a is a tragic death regardless of the circumstances, and and it's a great loss to the family. And I know what it's like to lose people to violence, so I know how that affects people and how it hurts. But but you know, looking at it um, as objectively as possible and as thoroughly as possible. Um, you know, it doesn't make it any easier or less painful for, for the loved ones to think that, well, okay, it was a, you know, it was a justified use of force. Um, that doesn't make it any, you still lost someone. And then there's the separate issue as to overall, you know, how people were treated and particularly minorities in, in some of the municipalities. And that's something that I've decried long before, uh, Ferguson came along. I mean, that, that some of these municipalities were, you know, we're doing terrible things, not just their municipal courts, but, you know, it shouldn't have been doing. Uh, in some cases, shouldn't even have existed because they couldn't afford to provide basic services mm-hmm. for their residents. And, and law enforcement was always my real concern that in some areas that needed law enforcement, good law enforcement, the best, just couldn't afford to do it. And and some ended up resorting to this um, taxation by ticketing in yeah. order to... Uh, in order to sustain that. And it was just, 
I think that created that. Everything's local, and the more local you get, the more of an impact it has. And I think that that was very local in, in some municipalities. And I don't mean to put all of them in that. You know, right. very few are doing that. But the ones that did were were really, uh, really doing it. The Ferguson case then brings to the forefront uh, police and certainly being at the centerpiece of many discussions. And this now, of course, is well mm-hmm. beyond St. Louis. This is nationwide. Sure. Um, what are your thoughts on those discussions, the discussions of dashboard cams, and whether or not that mm-hmm. would be an asset going forward? What is your perspective? Oh, sure. I, I think dash cams are, are great. I think that you know, if we had dash cams in, in every police car where we, we have seen them, and I think that's going to become much more widespread. Mm-hmm. Body cameras are, are going to help, but I think uh, there are drawbacks to body cameras, too, in that you know if there's something going on, if, if somebody's running, chasing after somebody, I'm sure you've seen the body cams sure. where you kind of get a little dizzy trying right. to watch them. But the dash cams are, are, are much better. They have a much wider perspective for one, and they don't have that. Uh, I don't know, it's your business. I don't yeah. know, whatever yeah. the camera, yeah, whatever right. the camera thing is yeah, with no, that. No tripod, that's for sure. So, yeah, yeah, and I think those, uh, I think those, uh, you know, are a great benefit for everybody. Mm-hmm. And and the widespread use of those, I think that's that's terrific. You know, years ago we started, um, you know, recording um, interrogations. You know, and that's you know that's been that's been beneficial, I think, to the entire system because now people can look at that and say, you know, well, here's what went on. I mean, mm-hmm. here's from start to finish. Here's what happened you know, during this, uh, this interrogation or this interview of a witness. So I think that's only, that's only good. Mm-hmm. Uh, only good comes from that. So, um, but I think, you know, we certainly still have a long way to go and we've come a long way too. I think that, that the relationship is still needs a lot of work certainly. And, and, you know the, the the police working with the community and the community working with the police. I mean, it's it's a partnership. It's got to be a partnership. We're not adversaries. With with and Fer- shouldn't be adversaries. With Ferguson, with the Rams, with the MLS vote, and with crime as a whole in St. Mm-hmm. Louis, I think right now there's a, there's an understandable justification. Whether you want to look at it from a it's high time that people recognize we need to get better, or uh, at least an acknowledgement that there are problems in in the region. With respect to your specific area of expertise, crime, um, what is your perspective on crime in the St. Louis region? Granted, you're in St. Louis County, but still, what is your sure. perspective on Well, the perspective on it is that we have, and we concentrate, um, when I say we, I mean the prosecutor's office, law enforcement, we concentrate on violent crime, certainly. That's something we take very seriously and try to try to eliminate it. We're never going to eliminate it completely, but, but manage that. You know, we go after uh, people who are responsible for committing violent crimes. And what we've, it's not a big secret is that there's a very small percentage of people who commit a very large percentage of the violent crime that's out there. And so we work with uh, other uh, agencies around the state, with the federal government, the U.S. Attorney's Office, in trying to address those specific issues, whether it's guns and seeing following guns and seeing where they are, what guns are used and what crimes and making sure that everybody has that information. And at the same time, working on, on uh, as we have for years uh, and something we just never got around, you know, we're, I will tell you one thing I'm very bad at is publicizing what we do. What we've done for a long time is on, on nonviolent issues, 
you need to address those. You need to address those cases, whether they're drug cases, drug sale cases, property crimes. Those have to be addressed. But um, you also recognize that people make mistakes, you know, and and there are ways to remedy those mistakes that may be coming into the criminal justice system. There's probation. There's drug treatment. You know, I started the drug court in St. Louis County almost 20 years ago, and we've had hundreds of success stories coming out of there. And it's, you know, we've always treated that as a public health issue, the drug addiction, whether when I first started, it was heroin. Mm-hmm. And and then it moved to PCP, and then there were... Meth was a big scourge, and then cocaine, the crack cocaine, and now we're back to heroin and opiates. So, But we've always tried to treat that, and more so now, as a public health issue. You know, we had nearly 200 overdose deaths in St. Louis County alone last year. Those are opioid overdose deaths. Now, if 200 people in St. Louis County died from the flu last year, we would have been all over that saying, hey, this is an issue. We've got to find out what's causing this and do something about it. And we're finally heading in that direction, I think, with the opioid crisis, you know, trying to regulate it in some fashion, which you have to do. But at the same time saying there's a problem here. You know, this is a public health problem. People are dying in record numbers um, from this. And we've got to figure out the cause of that, address it as a public health issue. The same time, as I said, with the drug court, and and expanding that to cover uh, DWI, you know, alcoholism, um, expanding that to to uh, work with those who have mental health issues. Most recently with the Veterans Court, you know, the Veterans Administration, uh, in conjunction with them, we run a Veterans Court where these guys have the same issues uh, for the criminal with the criminal justice system. But at the same time, you know, where they've committed crimes, they've done that. They may have a drug addiction. They may have some mental health issues, whether it's PTSD from combat, some other issues, but try to address those. Now, the criminal justice system may not be the perfect place to do that. But right now, that's what we're doing. Um, and and hopefully they'll pick it up long before anybody ever gets to that situation uh, where they're in the justice system. But while they're there, when they get there. So over the years, we've worked on, as prosecutors, legislation that allows for expungement of records in certain situations. You know, a guy has a drug conviction. Uh, we help craft the language for the, for the current statute that after a period of time, crime-free time, um, under circumstances, those convictions can be expunged. They can go away. You can, you're free to say then that, no, I've never been convicted of a mm-hmm. crime. So, and there needs to be room for that. And we do probation, use probation as extensively as possible to address that without putting the public in danger. There's a balancing act there where you want to you want to take care of this case, but you don't want to put the public at any greater danger than you have to. Um, I started a diversion program. Actually, it kind of got sidetracked in 24, 2014 for a bit, but in 2013 started a diversion program where we take at-risk youth, kids that are eh, not just kids, but 17, 18 to about 25 who are committing crimes that that aren't violent crimes, but they're usually drug-related in some fashion. They may be stealing something to support a drug habit. They may be, you know, selling a little dope here and there, Mm -hmm. but try to keep them out of the system altogether. It's in our, look, we've got a case we can file a charge on this, but here's what I'm willing to do. You go into this diversion program, 
If you're in school, you stay in school. If you're not in school, you get back in school. You get a high school education at least. You get a job. You keep a job. You keep us informed of all this. There'll be random drug testing, drug counseling, if we can do that. You do your part for at least a year, and everything goes fine. And my part will be that I will never, ever file these charges against you. They, it won't happen. You will never uh, you know, have pled guilty to something or even have the charge pending against you. And so... We're starting to see a lot more success in, in that area and a lot of success. And the, the drug court has been remarkable. I, I urge everybody I talk to to come to a drug court graduation. I mean, there's not a dry eye in the house, mine included, because uh, these people will talk to you about, you know, how, how their life has been given back to them. They didn't want to come in there in the first place, but now that we're here, We've been put through this. Yeah, we stumbled somewhat along the way, but everybody worked with them, and it's prosecutors, defense lawyers, the judge, probation and parole, treatment providers. It's, it's, it is a full-service operation, and that team you know, will we'll work on who's in and into the drug court and who's not. And they're, but they're just great success stories. Not everybody makes it, mm-hmm. but the vast majority do, and, and a fair number of them come back uh, to be mentors uh, in the program. You know, I've been able over the years to expand working with uh, other organizations on on the uh, drug court um, that, you know, we have to recognize that uh, that it is a problem. There's, there's going to be uh, some failures. There are going to be some that slide, uh, do a little backsliding, if mm-hmm. you will. And so part of the drug court is we, we, uh, we have professionals come in and explain the use and provide Narcan to the families uh, so that if, if that happens, um, you know, they know what to do and how to go about doing it. Yeah. Um, we're working with the, uh, the jail now, the county jail, uh, to provide that when people are released from jail on, on bond or whatever, because they're very high risk at that point if they have a drug addiction, that at least they have access to, uh, to Narcan, um, that hopefully they won't need it, but if they do, there's somebody there to administer it. So it's those sorts of things that, you know, while we concentrate, and believe me, I, I want to take the violent people off the street and keep them locked up for as long as we need to keep them locked up because they're going to come back and prey upon the public again. That's what makes neighborhoods unlivable, uninhabitable. Um, and, and the minor crimes, lesser crimes, I should say, not minor, lesser crimes, you know, try to work with them the best you can. Not everybody's going to work with you on that. And right. Some are going to end up, you know, going down that uh, that uh, terrible trail. But but a lot of them we can work with and keep them out of the system altogether. And there, there's a balance there that we try to try to keep going. I'm curious what your perspective is on what is a growing trend, specifically on the coast, and it's moving toward the Midwest, and it's it's up for voters here soon with the decriminalization, legalization of marijuana, and then the potential impact on that. What is your perspective? You know, I think we have some concerns with that, particularly the medical marijuana aspect of it. I've said for years, um, long before this this came up, that what there has to be is, like any other um, any other medication, there has to be the research on it. To, okay, so what is it about this particular uh, drug or this particular substance, whether it's marijuana or an opiate, what is it that that provides relief and for what conditions and in what doses and what are the side effects? That's what the FDA does. And, and when they do that research, and they should be doing more of it and should have been for 
for years, then they can tell us that, look, this is the impact that it has. And then it, and then it goes. It, I always ask people to do this. Watch. Next time you're watching TV, there'll be, I guarantee it, there will be a drug uh, commercial that comes on. Those are longer than normal commercials. They're about a minute and a half long. And the first 20 seconds is, hey, if you've got this condition, we can help yeah. with this. And this drug will do this. It'll put you back on this. And, put, and, and the rest of it, up to about the last 10 seconds, is... <laughs> Don't take this if you have this. Don't do this with that. These are the side effects. And that's very important because you're supposed to know that. And I just can't imagine a doctor saying, okay, I know you just did knee surgery. Now I'm going to give you a pain reliever. I'll give you a script for pain reliever. You go down to the to the local drugstore and you decide, do you want Tylenol with codeine or do you want hydrocodone? Do you want Oxycontin? Um, and then you decide how much. Uh, that you want to take and when you want to take it and decide how you want to take it. You know, crush it up and snort it, take it as a pill. That's just not how we should be doing medicine in this. So that's that's a big issue I have when, when they try to pass off um, and pass these things saying it's medical marijuana. There's, there's certainly some, uh, some components of, of the cannabis plant that have shown great promise, the, the cannabidiol, um, has shown great promise and, and, and is available to treat certain conditions, epilepsy for one. Mm. But the others, you know, who knows? Is it the THC in the plant or is it some other component that is providing relief and in what doses and how so? So if you want to make it recreational, that's a separate issue altogether. Where are you on that? Well, I I don't think it's a good idea. I mean, just making just what I see you know, in the courthouse every day. And though it's, you know, not everybody who smokes a little weed ends up doing heroin, but it creates some issues that are out there. There's some debate, the gateway drug element, which I gather is where you're kind of going with this. Yeah, not exactly a gateway, but, but uh, I mean, not, not everybody who smokes moves on to anything. And, and I couldn't tell you how many do right. that, but, but it does create some issues with that. And, and you know, putting more um, substances out there that are, mind-altering to whatever degree, uh, you know, I just, I just don't see that as a good idea. You're up for re-election again. Yes. Uh, and uh, you've either won by a landslide every time or people don't even bother running against you. Yeah. <laughs> sure. uh, so what, what, what are we looking at this year? Well, this year, you know, we have uh, uh, an opponent coming up in the primary in, in uh, August. But I think, you know, looking at the... the what I've done over the years, you know, experience counts. Um, you know, we've kind of seen uh, what the lack of experience can do in certain high offices uh, across <laughs> like the country. I'm playing a game show right now trying to figure out what you're saying. <laughs> but but I think you have to know the job in order to do the job. And and that's where experience comes in. And I, I've got that experience. I mentioned earlier, I spent uh, over seven years as an assistant prosecutor trying everything from uh, DWI cases to capital murder, death penalty cases. And and so I know how that operates. I know uh, what we do in the office and what needs to be done. You know, the first thing I did when I came into office was created the victim service unit within the office because we didn't have the services that we needed to provide to our victims. Mm -hmm. It was just sort of hit and miss. You know, if, if my prosecutor was talking to a victim they needed some assistance with something, you know, maybe we could get them off to somebody, but created the victim service unit in there. And that's their job specifically is to make sure that our victims are taken care of. 
Um, that's something, you know, you don't know without having been there. The domestic violence unit, my sex crimes unit, you know, I could see a need for that. That's a highly specialized area. Um, and not everybody's cut out for it. You know, I'm one who's not cut out for that. I, I, I would not do well uh, prosecuting the cases that involve child sex abuse victims. Um, and so I have very dedicated people to that who are very well trained and very well monitored, mm-hmm. too, because, you know, you can burn out pretty quickly on yeah. that. If, if, and so um, and so people are very carefully selected. And so you see how that's done and who's capable of doing what and how they're doing it and make sure they have the, the tools to do that, the training to do that. The, I think all that's very important to have that uh, that experience to be able to, to run that. Now, talking to a friend of mine who's a was at a meeting. But he was in that issue came up about the experience and look, I was a sprinkler fitter. I said, well, when you're back on the job tomorrow, who do you want as the boss? Do you want the guy who's been through your apprentice program, who is now a journeyman sprinkler fitter, who's worked every aspect of that job all the way up from assisting on service calls to installing, you know, in, in commercial buildings? Or do you want a guy who's... Um, total experience is hooking his lawn sprinkler to a garden hose. You know, that's, there's a big difference. Yeah. And so that matters. So it's a question that people ask anytime somebody's been doing something for a mm-hmm. long time. Do you see a time where you're going, you know what? I've had a great run. I think this will be, this will be my farewell. Or are you like, you know what? I want to keep doing this as long as I can possibly keep well, doing it. Well, you know, I, I've always said that as long as I, enjoy it. And I look forward to, to going to work every day. And I think we've done a pretty respectable job over the years. I, I know there are spots where people had, take issue with some of the things that we do. But I think that, uh, you know, that, that it, it's a big office. Uh, it's a major office. You know, it's one of the largest. If we were, if we were a law firm, we'd be one of the largest in, in the metropolitan area. Um, and, you know, they're dedicated professionals in that office. You know, it's not it's not something anymore where you come in and you and you hang around for a couple of years, try a few cases, get a little experience and move on and go make some money somewhere. You can make a career out of being a prosecutor in St. Louis County. And that's what I look for. And so I, I've enjoyed that. And every uh, you know, it, it's it's a four year term. And so every time you get about halfway through it, then you start thinking about the next yeah. one. So am I going to do it? And I, you know, and so. Yes, I am. Yeah, are you going to do it? Absolutely. Sure. Final question: When it's all said and done, whenever you decide, you know what? That's been it's been an incredible run. Yeah. Are you comfortable with at least nationally and to an extent locally your legacy being 2014 in Ferguson? Well, I don't know that that you know is is the legacy that that I don't know that's the legacy. I know that I've got 28 years almost. Um, as the prosecutor in St. Louis County. And I'm very comfortable with the overall 28 years that are there. There were some rough spots in there. And, uh, you know, we, we always did what we think was the right thing to do under, based on the evidence in the law. And as long as I do that, I'll leave the legacy and uh, to the uh, historian, uh, <laughs> leave it to the uh, to the whatever those guys are, bloggers, yeah. and all that, you know, <laughs> yeah. say what you want. Yeah. Because, you know, that's, that's, but you know, I'm very comfortable um, with what we've done over the years. And, and there have been some many disappointments, you know, we have unsolved child murders, which are, and we keep working on those cases and other cases that are unsolved and they're, they're heartbreaking. Um, you know, and, and that, that I suspect when I do retire will be, 
the only real regret that I have that we weren't able to resolve that and at least bring some measure of comfort to the families in those cases. Uh, but but I want to assure them and do that you know we'll keep we'll keep plugging away on it as do uh, the police who are, who handle those cases. Bob, I've enjoyed the conversation so much. Thank you so much for uh, coming in. My pleasure. So there it is, our conversation with St. Louis County Prosecuting Attorney Bob McCullough. I always welcome your feedback, and I'm sure many people will have many thoughts on what he had to say. You are welcome to send me your thoughts at tmckernan at insidestl.com, T-M-C-K-E-R-N-A-N at insidestl.com, and we welcome your reviews of the Tim McKernan Show on iTunes or wherever you may podcast, and of course, support our sponsors, Ryan Kelly, thehomeloanexpert.com, James Carlton, State Farm Insurance Agent, and Johnny Landoff, Chevrolet online at Landoff.com. As always, thank you for listening to the Tim McKernan Show. Thank you to executive producer John Seymour. Thank you to our sponsors. And thank you, the audience, for listening and supporting the podcast Tim McKernan Show here on the Inside STL Podcast Network.